I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here today in beautiful Newport Beach, California, with three of my good friends and colleagues, Mr. Nate Straw. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Sean Latimer. Hello, hello. And Miss Leslie Ray. Hello, everyone. Always save the best for last. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about an article I wrote called Skydiving and Safaris, because skydiving and safaris have a lot to do with finance. Uh, This was a fun article for me to write because I'm an absolute nerd. Uh, The article was about this idea, this hypothesis that I have, um, that clients can actually expand their risk tolerance, and we'll talk about what that means, their, their, their willingness to endure volatility when they resource an advisor. Um, we're kind of saying, hey, what is the difference between if you're doing it on your own versus if you have an advisor? The reason I like to juxtapose those two things next to each other is because I think that can open a conversation about the value that an advisor can add. So the reason we talked about skydiving and safaris in the article is I was saying you'll probably find very few people that are do-it-yourselfer skydivers or do-it-yourselfers safari guides or however you would articulate that. And why? Because there's an inherent risk, right? If you're falling through the sky and something goes wrong, the outcome is not ideal. If you step across a hungry lion, the outcome is not ideal. Um, But even with that risk, do people do it? Yes, they jump out of planes when they're strapped to somebody that's an expert. Not always. What do you mean, not always? I went skydiving, and they give you two choices, where you're strapped to someone, or you do a three-hour, very informative class, which is a really short amount of time, and you jump out by yourself. So that's true, and I knew that coming into it. That's why no example is perfect, but my rebuttal to that is that that three-hour class gosh, this is going to sound weird, but it's supposed to take you to that expert level oh, where you yeah. can functionally do it on your own. And it's it does tie into your point because I would never just go do it by myself. I took a class, they give you all the equipment, they show you how to do it. They're kind of right there too in case an emergency happens and there's a lot of safeguards in place. Perfect. So here's the hypothesis. Um, is it true that along with an advisor that somebody's risk tolerance would change? Absolutely. And the reason I'm posing that question is because I don't think... I would have thought of that two years ago. I don't think I would have thought of that six months ago. I think this concept of this idea that taking a risk survey by yourself and you're going to do everything on your own versus having an advisor, those are two different outcomes. Your tolerance for risk is not just innate. It's also influenced by your environment and who you've kind of uh, strapped yourself to. Um, So... uh, like I said, I'm a nerd. I, I want to talk about this, but I, I would love to get a roundtable and just get a discussion going on what your guys' thoughts, because I, I don't think this is something I've heard talked about a lot. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go first just because I have a lot to say about it. And you're right. We do use risk tools where people do answer questions and they pretty much try to quantify what they'd be comfortable with with volatility or risk. But the funny part is there are a lot of instances where they will mark something on a tool and then you'll look at the results and then you'll ask them and talk to them about it, and the answers they give you are very different. And so the, I think that that right there, just them being able to explain what their understanding is of volatility will help them maybe change their risk tolerance. Uh, a good example, too, is they may say that they're only comfortable with a certain type of downside, and then you ask them how they reacted in March of last year when their, portfolio, when their portfolio did make those changes, if not more, and if they didn't notice or if they didn't budge, that's kind of uh, checking tape and showing them that they could probably withstand a little bit more. 
you're kind of saying two things, which I want to break down both those, but I want to ask a question first. So I think this was probably my belief before I really started thinking about this. So what you're saying is risk tolerance is not an absolute. No. Is that you can't go around and give everybody a number and that stays the same regardless of the other variables. Those variables influence what that number is. And that's why it's important to have an advisor that you can work with and you trust because it is an art. Because if they put one thing on paper and then they say something different, you definitely have to find something in between. And if you're listening to this and you haven't read the article yet, the the whole reason that I think this is important, because right now it could seem like semantics or this is just like nuance or granular. Who cares? You know what I mean? Like one risk number versus another. Well, it matters a lot. We, We talked to an article last week about compounding interest. You start changing those rates of return over 20, 30 years they make a ginormous difference. Uh, last week, we talked about the difference between 2% and 8% over 30 years, and it was the difference between not even doubling your money versus a multiple of 10. Yeah, I'd say a lot of the value uh, in terms of the guidance that an advisor will give comes from also uh, defining risk and having that conversation, right? Making the distinctions between market risk and business-specific risk with individual equities or, or funds, for example, And talking through that, I I think I would say a lot of people, when they hear the word risk, they think of a stock going from the price to zero and just substantial loss um, and permanent loss, which is a good fear to have a healthy one. And and it's good to to have that conversation. But um, in addition with the guidance is making those, having the conversation of what does risk mean? And uh, you define that a little bit in in the article and you associate with volatility, which I really liked. Um, but I think that's always really helpful for people is to talk about what do you mean by risk and because um, that helps them determine how much they're willing to take. So my question for you, Nate, is that you come in as a client and I ask you a, a real direct question. Hey, this portfolio is going to go up sometimes and it's going to go down sometimes. Uh, what is the greatest downside you'd be comfortable with? So if we picked a point and your portfolio was a million dollars on this statement in April of this year, um, what's the biggest change you're willing to endure? Um, so just make up an answer for me. 50%. 50%. So you're willing to see a million-dollar portfolio go to 500000 That's a 50% downside. Uh, I don't get that answer from a lot of clients. but uh, <laughs> Nate's a gambler. Hey, I love it. Um, but the, the point I'm making is I, I never thought before that that willingness to endure that downside or that volatility could be impacted by what you're saying is education, which I think is huge but also having another person that they have confidence and trust in um, so that they kind of don't have to make those decisions on their own. And I've always thought of it from a behavioral coaching standpoint that reactionary, you could help somebody not make a bad decision in the moment. But I never thought about the proactive side, that you could actually design something a little bit different knowing that they're going, uh, they're jumping out of this plane with somebody rather than on their own. For me, when I read this article, um, what I thought right away was all of the different risk surveys and risk measurement tools that exist. So you will take a risk measurement uh, survey with us or with someone else, and all of the results will always be different because, as Sean said, it's more of an art than a science. So you have different tools combined with conversation, different people use different methods, etc. So that was my first thought. My second thought was... Um, resonating with Nate about education. So now that you, let's say you have a new client that come on board and the risk survey um, has a risk number at that point. And now with your help and education 
do you see that number change over time where people get more comfortable as they get more educated, they are getting used to working with you more? Um, does Do they uh, take more risk after a while? And also, how often do you guys reassess the risk for your clients? So I'm going to give Trevor some props here because I listen to a lot of his client conversations and what Trevor does a really good job at is he sets the expectations up front where he tells them, Hey, if we allocate like this, we're going to maximize the returns according to your financial plan. We have safeguards in place in case you need liquidity or in case something comes up. But I want you to remember this conversation because if we do allocate it this way, there will be a period in time where the portfolio can go down X percent. And I want you to remember me saying this because when you call me and you ask me, what are we going to do to change it? I'm going to tell you nothing. So I want you to remember this conversation. And it really does resonate with people because I feel like you set clear expectations where if it's two years, five years, 10 years, when that moment happens, like Trevor mentioned in the article that we can't control, that are completely out of our purview, when that does happen, they're prepared for it. I think it drastically changes. And that's why I have this hypothesis. Um, and again, gosh, it's it's so hard recording this podcast after I was just writing this and, and kind of thinking about it. But I think it's a revolutionary thought because I don't think it gets a lot of discussion. So I'll be extreme, but maybe, Leslie, you're saying that uh, somebody to their own devices might say, like, hey, um, I'm comfortable with a 10% downside. I, like, do I think there's cases where that person could actually be comfortable with a 40% downside? I do. Like, I absolutely do. Now, I, I tell clients this a lot in conversations. I don't think it's a good idea to lead the witness. I don't think it's a good idea to, to push somebody further than what their comfort level is. Um, and I think how you frame the conversation, the education is so important. But when you understand how compounding works and how these incremental changes in returns, they're not incremental. They, I mean, yes, they are incremental by definition. They're not marginal. They make a big, big difference in the long run. And, and in reality, you're not going to go back 30 years from now and hold me accountable for something I did 30 years ago, but I should be, right? So if I'm accountable for the next generation and your legacy and all of those things, I have to come with a mindset to not maximize returns, but to have good stewardship over your wealth for what you're wanting to accomplish. Because how much you can give to charities in the future or the freedom you have with your time or what you do with your family, it is going to matter based on how we map out this plan from the get-go. Absolutely. I think, you know, people look at the investments as a main source of return. But uh, what's also just as significant is that conversation of, of managing their behavior and during times of crisis. And it's in those those situations where a lot of wealth creation happens, is is managing the behavior and saying, hold through this, I mean, a lot of us had those conversations March 2020, and if we were to put, you know, some dollar dollars to that those conversations, it would it would have probably add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars that clients. Um, you said made. millions of dollars, right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> millions. Yeah, and the thing that I I think is interesting um, is uh, I read a lot about institutional. Uh, advising and things like that and, and about endowments and looking at how an endowment will allocate a portfolio compared to a retail investor or uh, when I say retail, I just mean like any of us, uh, like how uh, a, a normal Joe or Sally would invest. Um, why are those so different? And people's immediate reaction is, well, an endowment is perpetual. 
Um, it doesn't have a finite life. Like it's 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 in perpetuity going to be funding these sources. Um, well, is that not true for an individual? Um, do they not have wealth that they're going to pass down to the next generation or they want to leave a legacy with? Um, is, is there a finish line for, for their wealth accumulation? I, I don't think there is. So I think um, are people in endowments different? They are. Um, but I think that they might be more similar than people give them credit for. Yeah, that makes sense. I, uh, my first reaction to hearing that was, well, that's where the planning comes in because there are people that legacy is less important to them. You know, uh, Leslie knows that from doing mm-hmm. a bajillion financial plans. But uh, I, I do think it's important to recognize that the old model of uh, taking a risk survey online, it's spitting out an asset allocation, and then you putting your money into some sort of self-directed fund that balances it that way is probably not the most efficient way to do it. Let me ask you a question. Client comes to you with a uh, billion dollars. I like this and uh, they spend $100,000 a year. And they ask you, hey, um, we don't really care about legacy. We're, we're kind of indifferent. Uh, you have any objections to just, just putting it under the mattress and uh, just kind of taking out cash as we need it? Uh, I think there's two trains of thought. Uh, the first could be, at that point, when you have that much money, you probably do whatever you want. But the second answer, and the one that I would probably agree with, is you're still responsible to be a good steward of your capital. And uh, I, that money could do a lot of good things for people. And so I think you have a responsibility to allocate it appropriately. So I agree with you. But that is almost antithetical to what you said before. Because I come across a lot of people that are in that situation where their spending is dwarfed by their balance sheet. And the conversation transitions to stewardship. But what you said about stewardship is legacy, right? Is that there's benefits to that capital and wealth uh, growing and accumulating and being able to disperse uh, to other uh, resources. You want to say something, so I'm going to shush. Yeah, well, no, I meant more that there are, there are people that they do want to spend their last dollar on their last day. Mm-hmm. And so when you build a financial plan, ultimately we work for the client. So, so is that goal, bad stewardship? I'm not going to judge someone. <laughs> okay. You each like how person, I did that, right? Each yeah, let, let Leslie wants style. to talk. Exactly. What I wanted to say, because it's something that I, I kind of hear here and there. And I think it's Education is not only around what they have today and how to manage their resources today, but sometimes it's people don't really think about what, what after, what's going to happen after I pass, or what do I want to do, what do, how do I want to make an impact. So sometimes it can be also a conversation about looking at what you have left at the end or potentially left at the end, and then what else do you want to do? What else do you care about? Like how do you want to impact the world? Uh, and and sometimes it's just helping clients and other people get there where they actually do the work of thinking through these issues um, because the easy way is saying, I don't care. I'm just going to spend the last dollar on my last day and then be done with it. But sometimes it's just people don't think through it. And that was well said because there are times where I've had conversations with people that start at, I don't care. I've saved this money. I'm going to spend it. And then as the conversation progresses, they realize I'm probably not going to spend all this. There are some things that are important to me. What would be the best way to map this out? Well, let me pose this question, too, because uh, all of us at this table know it's actually impossible to build a financial plan that uh, the last penny pays for the gravestone Mm -hmm. um, because we don't play a game of darts. We play a game of horseshoes, right? As close as we can, but we're not going to hit a bullseye. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why? Because there's variables we don't know. We don't know longevity. We don't know rates of return. Uh, We don't know inflation. We don't know taxes. We're going to give best estimates 
to kind of get that forecast and get us within uh, a range of reasonable uh, confidence. But with that said, even um, uh, adjusting the portfolio, not keeping it under the mattress, it actually does another thing for that person, creates a margin of safety that, hey, if our calculations were a little bit off, um, you don't have to worry about outliving your nest egg. Um, And all this is meant to go back to this idea that in the presence of a professional, should somebody expand their tolerance for volatility? I'm getting some shrugs. What do you guys think? I guess it depends on the scenario, right? Um, and it depends on the the assumed credibility of the guide, right? Agreed. Like so I was in. That's a good point. Are like they I, trustworthy? The yeah, safari guard like, guide lost three people last week. Maybe he's not the best guide. <laughs> yeah, like well, I did um, Kilimanjaro like a year ago, and you have you have to have guides to do the climb, and you want to obviously have guides that have done the climb, you know hundreds of times but there's also porters that are training to be guides and so usually they'll have like the main guide and then they'll have a porter that's training under the, the main apprentice guide. or exactly, something exactly mm-hmm. some type of apprenticeship but um and then there's there's so many different outfits with different types of guides and so we had to do a lot of research to make sure we had a proper guy that had experience and, and so on and so forth so it makes a big difference but to to my point is you're probably willing to take more risk if there's more of a guide or more of an experienced guy than before, yeah. When, oh, sorry, Trev. When you say that, uh, to your original question, when you say a lot of it just comes to, like, understanding and education, like Nate said earlier, where maybe people don't have a way to define what the risk tolerance is, but then after the conversation and they understand it better? So I don't disagree with you that education is important. Um, and I think that, like I talked about in this article, that risk tolerance or the word risk is a very obscure word because we don't know how to use it. We think it's like permanent loss of capital or uh, or something of that nature. But I guess where I'm making more of a point is Nate's telling me that he would not have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro on his own, but he would climb Mount Kilimanjaro with somebody that was a trusted expert. Yeah. So I am, am deriving from that, that his tolerance has changed. And I, I'm basically saying that his tolerance wasn't something solely like innate that it was just uh innate (laughs) Um, but it wasn't solely just something that was like it like he was wired that way or it was his temperament it was basically that this guide was expanding his tolerance because of that exchange of trust that he's talking about where it was almost a non-starter of them doing it on themselves but by having a guide they were able to participate yeah, so you're saying participate in an action, which is why examples are never perfect. I'm just saying, I never thought about this before, that if if you told me your tolerance was 10% downside, that your tolerance could actually expand if I walk with you on this journey. Yeah. To me, that's incredible. I don't think there's enough articles written about that, and I don't think that there's enough... I don't, I, gosh, I guess I'm tooting my own horn, but I don't think there's enough credit given to the advisor that that is a huge value add. That if there's a relationship between tolerance and returns, that having that guide along the way should in uh, a roundabout way impact returns, which in a roundabout way mm-hmm. uh, impacts wealth accumulation. Yeah, I, which brings another thought for me when we talk about that is, first of all, it's very hard to pinpoint a risk tolerance for someone because it really is dependent on someone's feeling at the moment. Like someone that's saving for down payment to buy a home, they're going to be 
a lot less uh, a lot less willing to make to take a risk with that money than someone that's just is already has what they need they already have the home or someone that is going through a very difficult time in their lives they just don't have the bandwidth to take more risk or think about doing something different and putting something else on their plate so to me i think it's really dependent on where they are today and this month and so it can really change at all times the other thing is working with an advisor the first thing i think a lot of you do is help people get organized know what they are kind of get a full picture of their financial life and then we do also planning for them so by doing that it organizes their life can make it all better clear picture for them And I think it's another reason why when you have that clarity and less stress around it, suddenly you're willing to maybe take more risk. Yeah. And it's, gosh, it's almost even hard saying that word, take more risk, because a listener's like, wait, what does that mean? Or or things like that. That's why I kind of get back to that, like, okay, let's just make it one easy measurement, like your your absolute tolerance for that one downside moment. Ups and downs. Yeah. Yeah, And and what that measurement is. Um, But again, it just opens up a conversation, which you're speaking to, that um, your tolerance is actually... Uh, changing over your lifetime um, mm-hmm. and that outside variables are factoring in. Now, you mentioned that you know money might be earmarked for house and things like that, which I, I, is less what I'm talking about. I, I'm more talking about money that is like you're in the perpetual bucket, um, money that's going to be spent I over know, a lifetime. Go I ahead. know, but in it's because we are financial advisors, so we can do these little bucketing parsing thing. yeah but for someone else that comes in for them their whole like mindset is around this short-term goal right now which i saw it affect uh, overall risk tolerance for some people now another thing i wanted to say is not everyone need to take more risk and be more aggressive there's some people <laughs> that are just fine where they are where leslie's they giving us hard disclosure because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, i'm thinking about it the more i think about it the more i think it's really there's some people that think why do i need to take even more risk Le- like, leslie's yeah. the voice of reason nate's hiking kilimanjaro <laughs> and gambling 50 so uh, i like it i like our no, crowd i like what you're saying um that's where i think that clarity matters And I like that bucket conversation of just bifurcating to two is to say, hey, like if your comfortability is to have more in reserves, let's do it. Mm -hmm. Let's then always measure that reserves to how many years of expenses that is. That way you have um, some sort of like sincere understanding uh, of what that is definable by your lifestyle. Um, No, I agree with you 100%. It is not about leading the witness. It's not about pushing people to have a portfolio that they wouldn't be comfortable with. It's literally to me that um, whether it's on a safari or you're skydiving, there is some impact on your tolerance by having a professional alongside with you. And Leslie made a really good point that we would never – And sometimes people get frustrated with us for this, but we would never make a recommendation without understanding the entire picture because we are financial planners first and investment managers. Yeah, and this guy's this might help you understand me too. So I had a client email me this week and they're like pretty happy with how markets have been behaving. And they're like, hey, I want you to transfer X amount from my bank account to my investment account. But just keep in mind, uh, I'm going to be buying a new property. So there's a good chance that I'm going to be using this money in the next like 12 to 24 months. And my response was, no, let's not transfer it. And he was quite surprised by that. I'm like, no, no, no. Like the, the probability or the risk reward calculation for the time period you're talking about, it's actually not in your favor. 
So I feel more comfortable with leaving it there, which where Leslie is saying exactly the, the, the details matter um, and they're going to impact uh, kind of what the guide will do. If Nate said he wanted to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in a, a, a time period that was unrealistic, the guy's like, hey, I'm not going on that journey with you. Uh, that's, that's not, that's not a, that doesn't make sense based on everything I know about this hike, this climb, your experience, uh, so on and so forth. You want to tell us about steaks? <laughs> or recipes? Yeah. If you didn't get that joke, Nate's a, a chef, and last week uh, we talked steaks, and we figured out a way to uh, talk food on this podcast, which we shouldn't because um, we had grumbling tummies last time. So, uh, <laughs> um, But anyway, I, I think uh, this, this idea that uh, there is some value to be added by an advisor um, with creating clarity um, and having good conversations and helping you understand I think is huge. And here's why I think it's huge. Uh, because we're getting to a world where everything needs to be quick, efficient, easy, where, uh, you know, you just want to have a target date fund. You yeah. just want to, um, you know, check a couple boxes, uh, you know, take a few surveys, um, then I'm done. And then I just walk away and kind of live my life. I don't like that. I don't think it's a good idea. I think the environment changes. I think your goals change. I think that safari guide is huge. Um, so it's interesting to think, um, and I obviously have a bias, but as I get further in my career and more conversations and all this, I see the, the, the value of an advisor even more valuable than I would have considered from day one. Um, so I don't have much more to say on this topic, but I will do a quick round table and let you guys each give your final thoughts, um, on, uh, what this was about and maybe what clients should would consider, um, in their own investing when it comes to this article and this thought and this hypothesis. Leslie, you get to go first. I wasn't prepared. <laughs> well, I, I really like this thought. I think, uh, I like yourself, I didn't think about this prior and I've been in the industry for a while, but it never really hit me that it was an impact on people. And it's very hard to measure the impact that advisors have on their clients because it's incremental, make incremental changes that have impacts like 30 years later, you will see it finally. Um, so, so to me, I think it's an important part of the value of working with an advisor and the value of also having clarity and understanding around who you're working with, what benefit they bring to you, and then um, what is your overall financial picture? Yeah, absolutely. I liked your your finishing point. Um, you know, as opposed to taking the just set it and forget it, and never really reassessing your risk tolerance, making those adjustments. I think constantly as you periodically fine tune your allocation, the planning. I think long term that in itself is going to make a significant uh, difference in your wealth accumulation as you do those little nuanced things do um, make a, a huge difference over time. I also say that um, when it comes to the Vanguard white paper that you mentioned in the article, uh, I'd encourage people to read that. That was That's really interesting. It's a, it's a very fascinating study they did on investors. And what that really boiled down to was the behavioral management. Uh, they focused a lot on that. But essentially, it found that there is a 3% increase for people that used uh, an advisor over time in terms of their ret total return. Um, and the article had its nuances of where the research came from and things like that. They're not yeah. just throwing it out of thin air, but go on. Yeah, just something I'd revisit. You, you mentioned the article. I, I, I found it really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great point. 
One thing I often say to people is that it's really hard not to be emotional about your own money. And I think that this conversation ties into it well, because when you're responsible for making financial decisions for your family or your children or your grandchildren, um, it, it can add a lot of pressure. And like Leslie pointed out, um, if you already have a lot on your plate, it's probably the last thing you want to add or worry about. So it's important to have someone that you trust that you can ask for guidance and uh, have that safari guide. I like the way that you put that in the sense that it's really easy to be emotional about your own money. And that's what I really like about a fiduciary because there's a lot of different ways that we can define fiduciary. But what I often tell clients, this is what I would do if I was in your shoes. Um, So I can kind of take the emotion out of it, um, try to put myself in their shoes, their paradigm, their perspective, their tolerances, their experiences, and say, based on all that, this is what I would do knowing what I know. Um, And I think that is valuable. Um, because it is very hard, like you said, to um, basically break away your emotions from your money. Those things are married in perpetuity, um, and it's hard to change that. So what I would encourage our listeners, uh, man, a lot of these articles are just good conversation starters with your advisor. Uh, Talk to your advisor and say, hey, what do you think my risk tolerance is? Uh, And did you build this portfolio based on something that is now changed? Um, and is this a conversation we should be having? Uh, Sean and I have offices next to each other with thin walls, so we can hear <laughs> conversations with clients. And he often hears me in even client reviews. Hey, just a reminder, great year for markets. Really good start to the first six months. Just want you to know that the expected downside on a portfolio like this is blank. Are all of us still comfortable with this? If not, we can change it. Um, and it's a great time to, time to change it when uh, everybody's cheerful, happy, and uh, we're winning. Um, it's very hard to make one of those changes when you have the opposite feeling. So, um, yeah, a great time for you to reach out to your advisor and say, hey, what do you think my risk tolerance is? Um, and with that said, I will ask that you rate the podcast. Five stars are preferred. Comments are welcome. Uh, you can email tom at thebonsagroup.com. You can address that to Sean, Nate, Leslie, Trevor, or whoever you'd like. We'd love to answer your questions. We'd love your comments, feedback, and ideas for future uh, podcasts. Hope you enjoyed today. We will see you next week where we will be back with more of our thoughts on money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice.
This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.